The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. It's one thing to say that anxiety is a good thing, that it can actually help you perform better. It's another to look at real studies that back the idea up, especially when it comes to work, performance, and leadership. Dr. Bonnie Hayden Chang is an associate professor at Hong Kong University Business School. She has a background in psychology. And when she started talking to people about their jobs and her doctoral work, she realized just how prevalent anxiety is. She's since studied the impacts, positive and negative, of anxiety at work. And she'll explain how it can be useful in our careers, even in the face of anxiety right now about layoffs or recession. She offers science-backed thoughts on how to handle anticipatory anxiety and channel the energy of anxiety into positive results at work and in life. I dove in by asking her if she was surprised by just how many people feel anxiety about their jobs. But before we start, I have to tell you that The Anxious Achiever is a finalist in the Signal Awards for Best Commute Podcast. Now, this is a big deal. We're up against some heavy hitters like Pod Save America, the Fantasy Footballers podcast, and Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn. I'd be so grateful if you voted for The Anxious Achiever. Just go to SignalAward.com and search for the show. So so you were surprised by how anxious people were about their work? I really was trying to focus on the bright side. There's too much negative going on in the world. And so I'm always just fascinated about, you know, people's ambitions and their dreams and what they're passionate about. And I just found it so funny that the things that were coming up were about, you know, their stress and their anxiety. <laughs> and so I actually started really digging into what does the research say about anxiety at work? And I found much to my surprise, there wasn't much. So Mm. there's a ton of stuff on stress, but not anxiety. And the little work that had been done pointed to anxiety as being bad news, right? Right. So anxiety negatively affects how you perform at work. It makes you a worse negotiator. You get lower outcomes as a negotiator. It's linked to counterproductive behaviors, even unethical behaviors. But that just didn't add up for me because are we supposed to be recommending to hiring managers to screen out anxious people? And we all know people who are anxious, right? But they're pretty exceptional at what they do. So there's got to be another piece of this. And so that really reinforced my desire to look at anxiety from a different, more positive lens. My doctoral dissertation was devoted to studying You know, not all the ways anxiety impairs work outcomes, which has already been shown in the research, but more about, okay, how do we help people harness the best of what anxiety has to offer? Because we know that anxiety can be good. And what makes anxiety different to other negative emotions is 
that it really operates like our sixth sense, right? It's like our intuition. It tells you when something's not right and something has to change. Whether you act on that is your reaction to anxiety, but it's this motivational function of anxiety that makes it potentially adaptive. I'll never forget when I had Dr. David Barlow from Boston mm. University on the podcast, and he yes. said, With, without anxiety, nothing would get done. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, you know, his famous quote is, crops wouldn't get planted, and athletes wouldn't compete, and businesses wouldn't get started. And I mean, like, you know, anxiety is obviously data, but it's also that sort of motivating I mean, I was anxious when I got up at five in the morning to talk to you in a good way. And, and here I am at <laughs> yeah. six, like full of energy. What's your relationship with your own anxiety? I'd say I grew up, I, I grew up as an anxious achiever to you know, tie <laughs> it heard back. Of that. <laughs> it, I don't think it was so much the anxiety that was brought forward for me growing up, but it was kind of the self-imposed perfectionistic tendencies. And I really mm. don't know where that came from because my parents were the most laid-back parents ever, and that's saying a lot for Chinese parents. <laughs> I mean, a funny story growing up is my parents put my older sister in piano lessons. I was four at the time, and I would sit on the piano bench, and my feet couldn't even touch the ground. So my mom didn't even think about putting me in lessons. But I started playing at home, just playing around, and my mom would gently suggest I try something else or even wait until I'm older. But I was so upset. Hmm. I wanted to play. And so she put me in lessons and somehow that continued for 14 years until I earned my piano performer's degree <gasps> right before starting university. And no one ever pushed me. All of this to say it's the overachiever would kind of yeah. lead to the anxiety to get there and, and these self-imposed goals. And I think that probably played into how I ended up studying it, right? Academics have the saying that your research is driven by a desire to study yourself. Hmm. Okay, so let, let's, I'd love you to summarize what your research shows about how anxiety affects our leadership. Because it's true, you know, you take a cursory glance at the research, it's really, a lot of it's really a bummer. You know, it's like anxiety makes us, we either don't take risks, right? Or we are impulsive and we get distracted. It's, it's, you know, you could scan a database and feel really bummed out, although I do see that changing. But let's talk about your research, your theory of workplace anxiety, and, and, and how you're seeing it evolve. Yeah, I mean, I think this was a culmination of my research during graduate school, and in particular, my doctoral studies. And I published it in the Journal of Applied Psychology, along with my advisor from the University of Toronto, Julie McCarthy, mm -hmm. we developed a dual process model to really capture the complexity of workplace anxiety, which was something that people really weren't looking into. And remember, this was pre-pandemic. Mm. And it really acknowledges that anxiety can, of course, have a negative impact at work, right? That's aligned with what past research has been saying. But it presents a more balanced perspective of workplace anxiety because it integrates this potential for the bright side, right? And it really, really captures that element of, you know, that the, the side that we know is beneficial. And so the first point about this framework is that it addresses how anxiety can be both good and bad. So we know that anxiety can impede your performance and productivity at work because of something called cognitive interference. Mm. 
right? It's that constant distraction or rumination that you experience when you're anxious and your mind's running all over the place. And that naturally detracts from the attention and the focus you're devoting to your actual work. So performance drops. Over time, unmanaged or untreated, that manifests as emotional exhaustion, a key component Mm. of burnout. The interesting part of this model is how anxiety can enhance performance, right? And the key piece here is really about self-regulation. When we're anxious, the way that we self-regulate matters. And self-regulation is really just a fancy word that boils down to self-management. And it captures a number of factors, right? How do we regulate our thoughts in terms of how we think about anxiety? How do we regulate our emotions in terms of how we manage our anxiety? And how do we regulate our behaviors in terms of how we respond to anxiety? Why is this interesting? Because a common reaction to anxiety is to avoid, right? (laughs) Or eat a box of cookies. Exactly. We want to escape. We want to disengage. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense because why would you want to approach the very thing that's screaming danger, right? It's like choosing to walk down a dark alley by yourself at night when all signs point to no. The problem with this, and particularly in the workplace, is that this becomes a pattern of behavior that over time becomes your default coping mechanism. Mm. But you end up limiting yourself, right? It's your fear of failure that's going to prevent you from taking on the challenging job assignment that might land you the promotion, right? It stops you from growing. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is this is amplified for women, right? Women Mm. will hold themselves back from even applying for a position because they're going through every single word in the posting. And if they don't meet that one criteria, they talk themselves out of applying. And so this model really captures that. It's approaching it from, you know, instead of withdrawing from work in an attempt to stop the anxiety, it's really about utilizing the motivational energy that's a part of anxiety to engage with our work. Yeah. And we've all heard that phrase, right? Growth is on the other side of fear. I would add to that resilience is on the other side of anxiety. Mm. Because while people may know that resilience is about bouncing back after failure or from crisis or what have you, what people may not know is that resilience is actually about not just rebounding to pre-stressor levels, but actually surpassing where you were before. And that's growth by definition. Wow. So I'll never forget when I had Judd Brewer on the podcast, he talked about anxiety as a habit. So so you feel that anxiety and it makes you uncomfortable and the brain hates feeling uncertain and uncomfortable. And so you may have the habit of reaching for that box of Cheetos or you may have the habit of feeling that imposter syndrome and thinking you're a failure and you're never going to get the job because you suck and not even trying. Yeah. And the challenge, the challenge is to be curious and to look at that habit and say, which am I going to choose, the Cheetos or the uncomfortable feeling or a new behavior? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think, you know, when you think about your experience of anxiety, and if you're someone who's lived with anxiety, 
or even if it's something new, it's kind of those reactions to anxiety, what you grasp at, those become mm-hmm. your habits, right? Yep. That becomes your default system of managing anxiety. And so if you think about, you know, for some people, it could develop into adaptive strategies, right? But for some other people, or in, at certain periods of time, just as easily, it could be the opposite. It could turn into ineffective strategies that have developed over time as a result of a pattern of reactions and habits that have either demotivated or caused an individual to disengage. And then over time, that contributes to the sort of learned helplessness. So in your model, is it then a way to sort of teach people how to lean into the discomfort and get over that knife's edge? Yeah, yeah. And I like the way that you phrase it because there's no simple solution here, right? It's- right. You're, and your brain wants to keep you safe. Like your brain is trying to help you, right? It's like, oh, sure, we're going to comfort you. We don't want you to be upset. <laughs> we don't want you to feel threat. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's almost the easy way out. Yeah. So you're almost having to retrain your brain to walk down a more difficult path but it's for long-term gain. Mm. But fortunately, there are, you know, step-by-step strategies that you can do here, right? So even, you know, research in the 80s has identified a strategy that really helps draw out the positives in anxiety, and it's called defensive pessimism. There's different Mm. terms for it now, but the idea really is to actually embrace kind of the negativity or the pessimism of anxiety and you're explicitly setting low expectations. So it mm. kind of sounds counterintuitive, right? How is this going to benefit me? But it's the opposite of telling someone who's anxious to relax or to calm down, right? Because we all know that that's the worst thing you could say work. to someone <laughs> who's anxious, right? And instead of going from 100 to zero, right? Instead of saying, you know, relax, <laughs> calm down, everything's going to be okay. It's okay. Let's go with this pessimism, right? Let's, let's go with this negativity, but let's take a small step forward, right? Let's not Mm. expect so much so that it becomes out of reach or so that, you know, this goal is impossible. And it removes that pressure on yourself that a lot of anxious achievers self-impose, right? So it doesn't become debilitating and it essentially cushions the blow of potential failures. You can't disappoint yourself if your expectations are impossibly high. But that's only the first component. The important part of this is that you're not simply setting low expectations, end of story. It's not a passive approach. You're actually mentally working through potential outcomes, right? What would Mm. it feel like if the situation or this event ended up poorly or not the way you intended? And I mean, actually walking yourself through the scenario in great detail to identify potential problems that might arise, right? What are the roadblocks to success? And then making a plan to kind of circumvent potential negative outcomes. And it's funny because the brain when you think about problems, just automatically kind of wants to plan ahead to think about how to prevent them. So what this does is, number one, it gives you a sense of control, which is a key Mm -hmm. part of anxiety, right? Feeling like you're not in control. 
And number two, it allows you to essentially reverse engineer your own success, right? If you've worked through all the potential scenarios and taken strides to prevent negative situations from happening, not only do you have plan B in your back pocket, you've got the whole alphabet ready to go. (laughs) But then going back to it's not easy, it does take initiative, it takes intention to want to get out of that rut. So it's funny, Bonnie, as you describe that, that's what leaders are paid to do. Leaders are paid to look ahead and consider all the scenarios, the alphabet of scenarios, as you say, and ask those hard questions and also accept difficult outcomes if it happens. I mean, that's really interesting because I think in some sense, how you phrase that, it would almost seem like the context of leadership would allow the anxiety to turn into something that's adaptive, right? That's that's the premise of my book, but yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me, and again, I'm not a scientist, but there's a lot about anxiety, of course, that is adaptive and painful at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's what makes anxiety so complex, but also so interesting, right? So again, going back to evolutionary psychology and thinking about how it's the anxiety more so than any other emotion that would be life-saving because it would alert you to the dangers or the threats that you need to avoid. And it's that motivational function of anxiety that we can use in the workplace and really hone in on that to push and enhance your performance. I mean, there is research showing that when you get adept at really learning your emotions and learning how to manage and use those emotions, people will actually choose or be able to turn on when to use the anxiety when they need to engage in something that's more planful. Because another key part of anxiety is that it makes you more alert, right? There's that function of anxiety that's hypervigilant. And so if you're in a situation that requires that kind of attention to detail, that requires that concentration and that focused energy, that's something you can channel. So again, when you think about leadership and anxiety, it is something that can absolutely be beneficial because it can turn on, for example, those defensive mechanisms that allow you to reverse engineer and plan for all of these potential scenarios of of, of worst case scenarios. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Let's talk about relationships and workplace anxiety. You did a study 
that the nature of people's relationships with their colleagues and bosses, if I'm getting this right, could mitigate some of the negative effects of workplace anxiety. Mm-hmm. Talk about this. And, 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 and if you're an anxious worker listening, what kind of relationships should you cultivate to sort of help you manage negative workplace anxiety? Yeah, I really love this question. And I, I really love this piece of research. This is also published in the Journal of Applied Psychology, along with Julie McCarthy and John Trigakos from the University of Toronto. The interesting part of this research is that your social network at work plays such an important role in shaping the impact of your anxiety and in distinct ways. Hmm. So we found that coworkers play a greater role in alleviating the immediate impact of anxiety on emotional exhaustion, whereas supervisors play a more pivotal role in offsetting the impact of emotional exhaustion on performance. So let's unpack this, right? The relationships you have with your peers is fundamentally different from the relationship you have with your boss, right? Just the nature of work design is such that you're probably more likely to have more informal, more frequent, and perhaps more natural kind of interactions and conversations with your colleagues Meaning, in general, you're probably less guarded, right? You're not self-regulating as much as you would speaking with your boss. And of course, there's different degrees of relationship quality, but to the extent to which you have stronger relationships with your colleagues, you're more likely to confide in them, right? To vent and to approach them with an issue or to even lean on each other for support. And this is going to help you manage the emotional effects of anxiety and offset exhaustion to some degree. Hmm. Now contrast this to a relationship with a supervisor. You're probably, again, there are differences in degree, but in general, you're probably more likely to engage in impression management, more so than you would with a peer. Right. Right. Maybe conceal negative emotions more, right? So supervisors are probably going to play a less important role in offsetting the immediate impact of anxiety on exhaustion. Mm -hmm. But because supervisors have more access to instrumental and tangible resources that can help you fulfill your work responsibilities, supervisors are likely to be more relevant in offsetting any negative impact of exhaustion on performance. (laughs) And we found support For exactly this. And this research was conducted with police officers across Canada, undoubtedly a high anxiety context. Mm. And so the takeaway here really is that social support is particularly important in alleviating anxiety in work contexts in terms of providing socio-emotional and material resources. And we saw the flip side of this during the pandemic, right? When people Mm -hmm. didn't have access to those interactions with their colleagues, right? We saw loneliness and social disconnection. It skyrocketed. Yeah. What can a boss do to help a colleague, a direct report who they see is, is anxious? It seems to me they have a, that peers have a pivotal role, but that bosses also have a pivotal role. Yeah. I mean, when I talk to my MBA students or to senior executives, you know, I'm just about to wrap up executive education teaching. We discuss this in in quite some depth because they're coming from different industries. And look, managers 
are more or less well-intentioned in their behaviors. I, I don't believe that managers wake up and choose to be toxic, or at least I hope not. But for whatever reason, either they're too busy or they haven't had the training or they don't want to admit they don't know, there are behaviors, and these can be micro-behaviors, right, that are, as Liz Wiseman says, are accidentally diminishing. Why accidental? Because they're done with more or less positive intent, right? They think that it's being helpful. And for all intents and purposes, maybe it is helpful for one member of the team, right? Or on a certain occasion, it's helpful. But to another member or on a different occasion, it's diminishing. Can, can I just interject with like mm-hmm. the perp that, yes, that I have heard from so many people who are especially who are quiet or introverted or have social anxiety? It's when they're in a meeting and the boss might say, Julie, we haven't heard from you. Anything to add? Mm. And all of a sudden, Julie's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I haven't spoken. What am I going to say? Am I going to sound smart? Mm-hmm. To me, that feels that is so accidentally diminishing. Yeah, that's that's a stressful situation to be put on the spot for someone who is an introvert, right? And again, that's well-intentioned behavior because the manager thinks, you know, here's someone who's been quiet and I really want to involve them. Another example, right? Let's say a manager holds off on giving Debbie a demanding project, right? They don't want to stress her out because let's say Debbie recently confided in her boss about her anxiety. So is this behavior being a supportive manager? Or is that bias because you're now withholding a path for Debbie's career progression, right? So, I mean, there's a simple answer to this, really, and it comes down to communication. I love this. There's an HBR article by Harvard Business School professor Boris Groisberg and his co-author Michael Slind, and it's about how leadership is a conversation. Leadership is an exercise in daily communication. And when we think about the elements of effective conversation, it's a two-way exchange, right? There's back and forth, there's give and take there, and it's ongoing, right? Because the objective is mutual learning. So going back to, you know, how do you know if it's diminishing or if it's supportive? Do I call on this person in a meeting? Well, you ask that person, right? Right. You have a conversation about it because maybe it's welcomed behavior for one person, but the same action for someone else would be diminishing. So you let your people tell you what they're comfortable with. And for that meeting example that you brought up, could be, you know, having a conversation ahead of the meeting and saying, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts and allowing them time to prepare. Mm-hmm or soft calling them mm-hmm. so that they have time and they're not put on the spot. So there's many simple steps that a manager can take to really ease the anxieties of their people. Mm. I want to talk about layoffs. So, I mean, <laughs> we're approaching the end of the year and it doesn't feel good for a lot of people out there. You just have to look at the news headlines globally and you can see that, you know, famous companies, companies that are sort of symbols of business are laying off a lot of people. I think a lot of people are anxious. I think a lot of high achievers, right, who hold anxiety very easily are anxious. I'm curious, based on your research, what you would advise, <laughs> especially anxious achievers, 
how they can manage their own anxiety about what they're seeing out there, their anticipatory anxiety, how to sort of think about the fear of layoffs in a way that is less painful, less dampening on performance, and and maybe even constructive. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with that word anticipatory, right? Mm-hmm. Anxiety is anticipatory. It's not reactive, meaning it's worrying about something that hasn't happened. And this is another distinctive element of anxiety because you may find that you woke up worrying about work or some element of your work that day and the day goes by perfectly fine and you worried for nothing. So that's good and bad, right? It's good because you survived the day and nothing bad happened. But it's bad because your anxiety can spiral and there can be no end to you convincing yourself that something (laughs) horrible is lurking just around the corner. I've never done that, Bonnie. (laughs) (laughs) No, never. What is that? (laughs) So when we apply this to something like a fear of layoffs, right, where job insecurity is a situation characterized by high uncertainty, The good is that this can actually intensify motivated action, right, for job Mm. preservation because anxious people are hypervigilant, right, in threatening situations. So, I mean, a salient example of this is the tenure system at academic institutions, right? Job insecurity (laughs) is a driver of high performance for pre-tenure faculty. Right. The danger is you can see how the anxiety can spin out of control, right? You catastrophize and you formulate worst case scenarios and that can be debilitating. Yeah. The fix, one of the fixes is that in times of uncertainty, such as during a pandemic, managers really need to play a more proactive role in understanding that their people are likely wondering, right, do I still have a job at the end of the month? Right. And being empathetic yet transparent about the reality of the situation, right? That's a kindness that leaders can give to their people because it really does nothing for your people to pretend that everything is okay or to avoid a difficult conversation only to cut them, you know, several weeks later. And even if you don't know what's going on, because the next level up, senior management isn't forthcoming, Mm. managers can still set aside the time to simply listen to their people and give them a channel to express their concerns. Yeah. Is it helpful or harmful if a manager says, I'm worried too? I think that's helpful. Mm. I think it's helpful because it role models vulnerability. It opens a dialogue for talking about anxiety. It makes the manager seem more human. They're more relatable. They don't need to project strength. And so suddenly you've kind of evened out the playing field. Yeah. And you can now open the space for your people to share their own anxieties their own worries. And so role modeling this behavior of talking about anxieties, I think is such a crucial piece in normalizing anxiety and making it something that is not taboo and is not something you have to be ashamed about or that you have to hide 
because you're worried about perceptions of competence or your fear of how it's going to affect your career progression. Yeah. I think you've just illustrated something really beautiful <laughs> and something I think is really special about an anxious achiever, which is that in times that feel insecure, you're probably putting in extra, right? You're really shoring up your performance as someone who's excellent, right? But if you can also channel the empathetic and human side, you can say, I, I don't know if this is going to be enough. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm just going to do the best that I can, right? And control what I can. And I think that that's, that's just a really beautiful kind of leadership. Yeah. I mean, my own department head during the pandemic and in my own anxieties, and I was just talking to him over lunch and he says to me, he said, Bonnie, let's just survive. <laughs> He said, this year is about survival. And it just, it just felt this burden just lift off of my shoulders. And I don't think he would even remember if I brought that up to him, that he said that. But that was, I think, a kindness or a gift that he gave to me. And all of a sudden, you're just thinking, you're right. We're all going through this challenging time. Yeah. And that just brought the humanity to leadership, which I really love. And that just highlights, you know, the piece that you were bringing up about we're all just humans at the end of the day, right? Trying to get by, trying to survive. So how can we support each other? So you've just written a book about kindness. Yes. So how does kindness relate to your work? And why should we be kind? Let's, let's talk about that at the end of the year. Why should we be kind to each other at work? Yeah. So, I mean, this, I've embarked on this past year on this research on kindness and leadership. And it's probably been the most intellectually stimulating undertaking up to this point in my career, because this was coming out of a pandemic, which has more than anything revealed kind of the unsustainable nature of current approaches to leadership, right? Which is completely devoid of kindness. And why kindness? Well, kindness is it's deceptively simple, right? Everyone has a preconceived notion of kindness. But that makes kindness a tricky thing because when you think about kindness in relation to leadership, you tend to get two schools of thought. You get one camp over here who thinks, yeah, okay, I'm a kind person. I'm not learning anything new here, right? Right. And then another camp says, well, kindness, that's probably lowest on my list of priorities as a business leader because I have a company to run and kindness isn't going to get me, <laughs> you know, to profit or, or outcome, which is all I care about. And those are really two extremes. So I think that's precisely why the book is appealing and exciting because it's relevant to both camps. In the book, I talk about how leading with kindness is not leading from nice, because being a nice leader doesn't drive impact. It doesn't move the organization forward, right? Contrary to popular opinion, leading with kindness actually intersects toughness. It takes strength to be kind. So kindness and toughness, it's not an either or, right? And the best leaders don't trade off on being tough to be kind. In fact, they are both. And both are integral 
to leading with kindness and making impact as a leader. It really is the kindness piece that puts the people front and center, making mental health and well-being not a nice to have, but a need to have, making it a core business strategy. It's the kindness that allows leaders to hold tough conversations with their people, knowing that people trust that their leader has their best interests at heart, right? It's the kindness that creates value for the people, the company, the community, and even broader society. And this is data back. And so the book really uncovers some remarkable and really unexpected facts about kindness and leadership. And presents the return on kindness. So it's the ROK, not the ROI, (laughs) demonstrating how kindness (sighs) underpins successful companies. And it also features interviews and anecdotes and stories from influential leaders on a global scale. And it walks readers through a simple but powerful framework to help leaders rise to kind leadership. (laughs) ROK. That's awesome. (laughs) Bonnie, thank you so much. This has just been great. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at Mora AM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.